what I'm going to talk about today is this book right here, Is Jesus the Only Savior? And if you want a short answer that, to that question, it is yes, he is the only, he is the only Savior. Let me give you a free gift while we're waiting for people to walk in. Here's a website, www.biblicaltraining.org. Let me work on the focus a little bit. Yeah. Uh, this is a great site, and you ought to write, write the uh, address down and visit it. What you'll find are complete uh, audio tapes of a number of seminary courses. Eventually there'll be probably 30 seminary courses, uh, and four of them will be mine. I think there are two of them are two of mine are already on there, and two more are yet to come. And you can listen uh, to these free of charge. If you want to get the the substance of what I'm going to talk about today, plus other parts uh, other parts of this presentation that I don't have time to cover, go biblicaltraining.org, uh, click on classes, click on apologetics, and then uh, probably go three-fourths of the way through the course. You can fast. Uh, you can speed your way through there, and you can find uh, basically what I talk, talk about today, okay? That's a great site. Uh, there's Greek courses on there, Old Testament courses, New Testament courses, and especially if you're in a college that may not be uh, particularly concerned about uh, the historic Christian faith, uh, this can be a good way to, um, to, to get ready for seminary. Let me also say this. I have lectured at about 80 colleges, universities, and seminaries in the United States. I've also taught at five seminaries. Uh, and if you are being led to go to seminary, uh, I honestly can tell you there isn't a better place to come than Southern Baptist Seminary, which is where you are right now, in case you just saw the crowded cars and decided to walk in here, okay? Now, when I finally got a title to this book, and that's a story in itself, but because time is short, I won't tell you how I got that title, except I will say this. I've, I've been working on this particular book for 30, I'm sorry, for three or four or five years, and I, I had all the research done, but it wasn't coming together until all of a sudden that simple question, is Jesus the only Savior, did come to my mind, and once I had that simple question, it, it was obvious to me that there are three fundamental, fundamentally different answers to that question. The people who answer this question, is Jesus the only Savior, with a no, are people whom we often call pluralists. A pluralist is someone who believes that there are many paths to heaven. There are many saviors. The Buddha, Mohammed, uh, depends on the nature of the, the pluralism. The second answer to the question, is Jesus the only Savior, is, goes like this. Yes, he is the only Savior, but, but, and in a moment or two I'll tell you what follows the but. Did I phrase that properly? Well, anyway, uh, I. <laughs> B U T, but. 
We call that position inclusivism. And then the third position is, is Jesus the only Savior? Yes, period. Right? No qualifications, no exceptions. In my book, I talk about pluralism, but I don't have time to present that material today, so I'll, I'll confine my remarks to inclusivism because this is a view that has begun to attract a large number of people within the evangelical community. What do we mean by the evangelical community? Well, that's what I am. That's, I presume, what most of you are. An evangelical is a person who believes that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, uh, an evangelical is someone who believes uh, the historic creeds of the church. Uh, an evangelical is a Trinitarian, among other things. An evangelical is someone who believes in the importance and the necessity of the new birth. You are not really a Christian in the New Testament sense of the, that term unless you are born again. And, of course, an evangelical is someone who believes in missions. We have a call to go out to all the world and preach the gospel. Now, here is a preliminary definition of inclusivism. Remember, this is a position that I do not espouse, that I'm going to be criticizing for you here. It goes like this. Even though Jesus is the only Savior... This is an intermediate position, somewhere half, a halfway house between inclusivism, between exclusivism that says Jesus is the only Savior and pluralism that says he is not. Even though Jesus is the only Savior, it is not necessary for people to know about Jesus or to believe in Jesus. Let me quote a famous Christian. I will not give you his name. That's not my purpose here. I'm sort of hopeful you will not know the name, but he was a guest once, about two years ago, on the Robert Schuller Hour of Power. And Robert Schuller, who is an inclusivist, asked this famous American Christian if people had to know about Jesus and to believe in Jesus in order to be saved, and here is what that famous Christian said. He said, heaven will be full of millions of people who have never heard about Jesus and who have never believed in Jesus. That's inclusivism. And again, I'm not going to give you the name of that particular person. Who are the advocates of inclusivism in um, Christendom today? Well, for one thing, liberal Protestants. Now, if you've never met a liberal Protestant, uh, be fortunate, count yourself blessed, okay? Because these are people who te technically don't believe in much of anything. Uh, so they're certainly not going to believe that Jesus is the only Savior. Point two, and this surprises a lot of people, the Vatican. The Vatican. Pope John Paul II. Uh, large segments of Roman Catholicism around the world have surrendered to inclusivism. If you want the specifics, I, I give them in my, in my book. But thirdly, a large number of people within the evangelical community 
people who used to believe that the Bible is our ultimate authority in matters of doctrine and conduct, people that we used to be able to trust, including people, and I hear I give some of their names, Clark Pinnock, John Sanders, and a whole lot of other people that I know personally and uh, uh, with whom I used to be friends a long time ago. In fact, I'm going to give you one more piece of information here. There is a person right now wearing a red shirt who used to be an inclusivist. And that's me. How could that be? Well, I'll give you a four-letter word. Dumb. D-U-M-B. All right? Now, you got to go back 30 years ago. At 30 years ago, I was head of the philosophy and religion department at a state university just down I-65, Western Kentucky University. We had a big, de uh, a big department. How could I have taught inclusivism? The reason is I hadn't thought about it. In fact, for good or ill, none of us really have been able to face up to this issue of inclusivism uh, before the last decade. Because it's largely people like uh, these two fellows that are named on the screen, Clark Pinnock and John Sanders, it's not until their books began to come out that uh, other people began to notice how heretical this position really was. I had gotten straightened out long before their books appeared. But I think it's important that you know that I know whereof I speak, all right? I was once foolish enough to surrender to some of these ideas. Okay. Now, what I want to do in the time that I have is give you examples of the kinds of arguments that these left-wing Christians theologically suspect Christians offer in what amounts to a campaign to make everybody feel better. This is a matter of feeling. This is not a matter of truth. Let me add one more thing here. If I could allow my theology to be determined by feeling, I might very well make that surrender. My father died in an ambiguous situation with respect to his relationship with the Lord. If inclusivism were true, I'd, I'd sleep a lot better at night, but that's not how you determine the truth about theology. All right, well, let's look at some of the arguments that inclusivists give, and then we'll look at the arguments against uh, of those claims. Sample arguments of evangelical inclusiveness. Number one, they believe that general revelation saves. Let me explain that. There are two kinds of revelation. There is special revelation. Special revelation is revelation that God gives to special people in special situations providing information that is not otherwise available. And for evangelical Christians, the ultimate source of special revelation is the Word of God, the Bible. Okay? 
general revelation is revelation that is actually accessible to the entire human race. It is what God reveals about himself through nature and through conscience. Why do inclusivists argue that general revelation can save? Now think with me here. Because they reject the claim that we need the information from special revelation about Jesus to be saved. So if they argue that heaven will be full of millions of people who have never heard about Jesus and who have never believed in Jesus, how is that possible? Answer, through general revelation. Okay. Second argument they offer is Old Testament believers Nobody in the... I'm going to give you the whole sentence, but notice how, how uh, it, it, it is um, trivial. Nobody in the Old Testament knew about Jesus. Well, boy, that's news. And nobody in the Old Testament actually believed explicitly in Jesus. So... Well, then, if the Old Testament saints could be saved without knowing about Jesus and without believing in Jesus, then billions of people outside the context, outside the uh, circumference of, of, of biblical uh, proclamation, they too can be saved. If any of you have taken logic, you know that there's got to be a problem there. Thirdly, there are holy pagans in the Old Testament. That means Gentiles who also were cut off from uh, uh, the content of special revelation and they were saved. So that gives us a way to understand how millions of people outside the, uh, the, the hearing of the gospel can be saved. And then there's the question of infant salvation. So those are some of the arguments that we're going to look at. Let's put this off the screen now and look at these arguments in some greater detail. First of all, does general revelation save? The key text here, and you've got to understand that when you're dealing with self-described evangelicals who are in the process of leaving the reservation, they, they're Commitments are supposed to make them subservient to the clear proclamations of Scripture. Now, the key passage in the Bible that talks about general revelation and salvation is Romans chapter 1. I do not have the time to read it here, but you write that text down, and here's what you'll find. Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that the revelation that God has given of himself and of his existence and of a great degree of information about his nature is accessible to anyone who may not know the Bible. The problem with that is, Romans chapter 1 says, no human being lives up to that light. No human being can be saved in... All that, general, all that that general revelation does 
is leave the rest of us without an excuse. It's there, but no human being has ever come to faith through that general revelation. And the reason is because of sin, because of total depravity. We need something more. We need special revelation, and we need the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. So what must be the fundamental premise of inclusivism contradicts the clearest New Testament teaching about general revelation in Romans chapter 1. Okay? Secondly, I didn't mention this earlier, they offer a view of faith that has no content. My friend Clark Pinnock loves to give examples of cults and sects, S-E-C-T-S, in other religions that emphasize faith. But my friend Clark Pinnock suggests that since these various non-Christian groups emphasize faith, the practitioners of that faith must themselves be saved. What Clark Pinnock used to know, but which he has since forgotten, is that faith is nothing apart from the content of that faith. And what Clark Pinnock suggests is it doesn't really matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter what you have faith in. Faith alone saves. I'm sorry. That's not Scripture. Some of you know about the... uh, football player in the Rose Bowl many years ago. This is such an old example that I think it's probably safe to use it again. All right? Because people 40 years ago, in fact, well, I better not say that. He picked up a fumble. And he ran 98 yards for a touchdown. The people who were trying to tackle him were the members of his own team because he was running the wrong way. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. And I'm afraid our evangelical um, inclusivists are uh, encouraging people to run the wrong way. Faith, Faith doesn't work unless it is directed to and centered upon the right object of faith, and that object of faith must be Jesus Christ. What about Old Testament believers? They clearly did not know about Jesus by name, but they did know about the Messiah. They did look forward to the coming of the Messiah. And those of us whose understanding of the Old Testament is is sound and grounded properly, we know that those people were saved because... They were looking forward to a death, a sacrifice for sins that was, as far as they were concerned, still in the future. Notice that the saving faith of those Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and go on from there, was a faith that existed within a covenant relationship with God not only a covenant relationship with God, but it was grounded upon special revelation. How can people who say that special revelation is not essential to salvation use Old Testament saints 
whose faith was clearly grounded upon special revelation and a covenantal relationship that was based upon that scripture. So it is not the case that Old Testament believers and contemporary pagans or non-Christians are in the same boat. There's another argument. Are there holy pagans in the Old Testament? Now let me explain the term. They were pagans. That means they were cut off from special revelation. They were Gentiles, but they were holy. When you look at the names of these so-called holy pagans in the Bible, you learn two things. Number one, either they were not holy or, number two, they were not pagans. Let me give an example of a so-called holy pagan who wasn't a pagan. His name is Melchizedek. If you've read the book of Genesis, you know the name Melchizedek. He was, get this, description. He was a priest of the Most High God. He was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was not, well, but he knew about the one true God. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Jesus is described as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a prototype of Jesus' own priestly ministry. How can you call this person a holy pagan? He wasn't a pagan. Naaman, captain of the, uh, uh, he was a captain of the Syrian host. We know a lot about Syrians, okay. Um, but he met Elijah. And Elijah preached to him. And Naaman was baptized <laughs> in the River Jordan seven times. All right, My Presbyterian friends get angry with me when I point out that Naaman was immersed not just once, but seven times. All right. he, was, he was not, after he met Elijah, he was no longer a pagan. Now, there is a pagan in the Old Testament that these people appeal to. His name was Balaam, B-A-L-A-A-M, okay? He was a pagan, but he knew nothing about Jehovah. He knew nothing about God. Now, listen to this sentence. Balaam's ass knew more about God than Balaam did. All right? Wouldn't that make a great... Sermon title on a church bulletin, all right? <laughs> Balaam's ass knew more about God than... Now, I'm talking, of course, about a donkey. Right. I had some of you shook up there for a minute, didn't I? And Balaam's ass spoke. He knew more than... So, these people are scratching the surface to try and find some justification for a position for which there is no justification. Now, how are we doing? Yeah, how are we doing on time? Oh, we've got plenty of time. I want to leave time for questions and answers. Let's talk about their problem with missions. All right? I believe in missions. I've done my share of preaching and teaching in countries like Russia and Ukraine and 
China, and other countries. Why is missions necessary? Well, take a look at two passages of Scripture. The Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Okay? And then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now watch what inclusivists do. They relativize the content of the gospel. Take 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, you want to know what the gospel is? Here are, there are three points to the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, first, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. That's Paul's identification of the content of the gospel. Now watch this. If you're an inclusivist and that's the gospel, then people in other countries and faiths and cultures have to know about Jesus. So you know what the inclusivists do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15? They say this, that was the gospel for Corinth. No, that's the gospel for the whole world. Why do they relativize the gospel as though there could be a different gospel for people in Beijing or a different gospel for people in Baghdad or a different gospel for people, take your pick. Because we cannot make the content of special revelation a necessary condition for saving faith. See? They have, they have backed themselves into a corner, and so they must say that was the gospel for Corinth because they don't want to appear to deny Scripture, but they really are in spirit. I'll give you another passage to show you how inclusivists play games with the content of Scripture. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Here's Paul. He says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Pretty clear, isn't it? Now, let me make something else clear there. What Paul is saying here is that there are two indispensable miracles which people must know about and which people must and in which people must believe in order to be saved. And those two miracles are number one, the incarnation. That the eternal Son of God became a human being, became the God man. How do you get that out of Romans chapter ten? Like this. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord. What's that mean? It means to recognize, to confess that Jesus is God. And secondly, that shalt, thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection. Now here's what the inclusivists say. That might have been the gospel in Rome. Notice, 
That might have been the gospel in Corinth. But take us to, okay, now we're in another city. We're in Rome. And what is Paul talking about? The incarnation and the resurrection. So here's what they say. Romans 10, 9, and 10 doesn't mean that you have to believe that Jesus is God and that you have to believe that the resurrection occurred. Clearly, if you do believe that, then you're going to be saved. Isn't that nice? But if you don't believe it, Romans 10, 9, and 10 doesn't really say that you're not saved. There's an interesting trick there. Near the end of my work on this book, this is an important piece of information. When you guys and gals write your own books, maybe you'll have these experiences. I had done three years' work of research on this. I had all of this on my computer finally, but I didn't know how to end the book. So I'm sitting in my family room down in Florida. My wife had gone to bed. The lights were low. And I'm meditating over the fact... Let me tell you, before I... When you write a book, there are three challenges. Write these down and give me credit for these. There are three challenges. Challenge number one to writing a book. The first sentence. Boy, heck, you know. Challenge number two. The last sentence. And challenge number three, everything in between. <laughs> everything in between. So, in my case, I had the first sentence. I had everything in between. I didn't know how to end the book. And I had a thought. I'm sitting there. And a thought occurred to me. And here's the thought. Why don't you pray? So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, Lord, I don't know how to end this book. It's a great book. Did you get that? Write that down. It's a great book. But I don't know how to end it. And believe me, this is true. At that moment, I heard, not with these ears, but I heard a command. And the command said, read the book of Acts. And I thought I heard the word dummy after that, but you know, read the book of Acts, dummy. Now, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. I was to get my NIV Bible, that is the old version of the NIV, the one that's faithful to Scripture. Okay. Now, some of you will understand that sarcasm, some of you won't. Okay. If you do understand it, okay. So, you know, here it is, 10 o'clock at night, and I'm reading the book of Acts, and I know exactly what I'm supposed to look for. I am supposed to see if there was even one case in the book of Acts where the early church proclaimed the gospel, fulfilled its mission without talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, you, and I challenge you to do this. Every time the early church witnesses, and they're witnessing to people from all over the world, they always talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. 
there isn't an ounce of inclusivism in the book of Acts. There is not an ounce of inclusivism in the, in the Bible. Okay? So, I had so much fun, I went back and I read the book of Acts a second time. You ought to do it. The next morning, I had my book almost finished, see? I'm sitting with my wife at breakfast, and I told her about my experience, you know. And I, you know, I wanted to know how good I am, see, when I listen to the Lord. And she said, well, that's okay. Guys, look. Marry a woman who will keep you humble. Okay? Is that right, ladies? Well, you've got to keep them humble because, you know. She said, that's okay. I said, okay? Here's what she said. And she went on to say this. Oh, but what about Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3? Okay, ladies, you've got to know the Scriptures better than your husbands do. I knew exactly what my wife was talking about. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives a testimony. And he talks about how righteous he thought he was. He talks about how good he was. And the point is this. If inclusivism were true, then Saul of Tarsus would have been saved before he ever met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Let me tell you, if ever there was a human being who could be saved according to the rules of inclusivism, it would have been old Saul of Tarsus. But what does Paul, notice again, under the inspiration, there's no way these people can get away with something here without denying the content and the inspiration of Scripture. Paul says, I was not saved. I was the chief of sinners. I was on my way to hell until I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I met the risen Christ. Woof. So you know how my book ends? It ends, I put the book of Acts stuff in there, but it ends with my wife's example. Now, let me tell you what my inclusivist friends do. After my book was finished, I was called on the phone by a man named John Sanders who said, I've got a contract at InterVarsity Press for a book titled, What About Those Who Have Never Heard? And uh, I want you to write the material on exclusivism. I said, why me? He said, because I've seen your stuff in manuscripts. Somebody had taken it and sent it around. And uh, he said, everybody else wimps out. Theologians talk that way, you know. They wimp out. And you don't. Okay. Well, can I use material from my book? Yeah. Okay. I got permission from Zondervan. So that book by University Press is out there. But what I also tried to do was to set some traps for these people. And let me tell you what John Sanders, I, he teaches up in Huntington College now, okay? 
which used to be an evangelical college. I don't know what they call it these days. Are any of you from Huntington College? I don't think so. John Sanders says in, in that book, in print, he says, for all we know, Saul of Tarsus was saved before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, I have a conflict at that time. On the one hand, I'm so thankful that my opponents are so foolish that they make a statement like that that makes my case. God give me fools as opponents, all right? For all we know, Saul of Tarsus was saved. Well, really? Have you read Philippians chapter 3 lately? Paul tells us his spiritual situation in Philippians. He was lost. He was the chief of sinners. Ooh, we got some strange things going on in the church today. All right, now, I want to close and give you... Here are a couple of passages of Scripture. If you want to, if, if you've taken logic, what I've just been doing here is this. I've been using what we call the, in, the, um, the disjunctive syllogism. Now, if you've been lucky, you think you've avoided logic. That's too bad. The disjunctive syllogism is a syllogism that's related to either-or statements. Okay. Now, consider two either-or statements that are not mutually exclusive, which is what we have here. And so we have a situation in which either exclusivism is true or pluralism is true, either A or B. In my book, I argue that pluralism is false, self-defeatingly false. Listen, you have no idea how difficult, how impossible it is to argue rationally for the belief that there are many saviors. And you, you, you've got to look at the argument to see that. So, A or B. B is false, therefore A is true. But there are other alternatives, see? If, if, if it's a choice between A or B, and I prove that B is false, then A is true. But now, what if there's another alternative? Either exclusivism is true or inclusivism is true. I believe in the full context, you know, if you, if you read the whole book, that I, I, I can prove that inclusivism is false. So A or C, C is false, therefore A is true. So by proving the falsity of pluralism and inclusivism, we can prove the truth of exclusivism within that particular context. Now, what if there's another position? Now, okay, bring them on. Bring them on. We all know that they're out there. Only in this case, you write your own book. You know, either A is true or, say, Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, you write a book against Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, now, take a look at these scriptures. Well, let's just look at one. Okay, how many times does God have to say this? That's not the passage I want. This is the passage I want right here. 
John 3.36. That's a great chapter in the Bible. That's the chapter in which Jesus says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) Sometimes I get these new versions and the old versions mixed up. That's also the passage, the chapter in which Jesus said to Nicodemus, a man who would ordinarily be saved according to inclusivism. Jesus said, you must be born again. But here's John chapter 3, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You want to know something? I know of no inclusivist who ever admits that that verse is in the Bible. I don't know what they do with it. They ignore it. Now, that's hardly the only passage that's relevant here. Okay. But um, I do want to maintain that if you look at the issues, if you think clearly through the issues, if you understand what's at stake with respect to Scripture, you will know that Jesus is the only Savior, period. No ifs, buts about it. Well, now let's take a couple of questions. Um, I know you all have to be somewhere else at 11.15. I have to be on an airplane. Let's start here and make our way this way. Yes. I wrote another book. Good question. Yeah, you know. Okay. It's called When a Baby Dies. Uh, I'll tell you what my answer is, but you want you, to get the whole thing, you've got to get... I'm trying to find it here. Here it is. This is really a sequel to the book, Is Jesus the Only Savior? What I do in this book is I argue that every child that dies in infancy is saved. People ask, doesn't that mean then that people like these infants who die as babies, uh, that they are saved without knowing about Jesus? Well, here's what I do in the book. Uh, I answer that question. And I guess I won't, I, I, I really don't have the time to do it, but if you've read the book, you know how I do that. I argue that Infants who die in infancy are saved in the same way that adults are saved, which means that it is totally the work of God. Because, you see, I am a Calvinist. And the thing about which I am most smart is to recognize that I had nothing to do with my salvation. Nothing. I didn't do a thing. I didn't deserve it. But God chooses people before the foundations of the world to believe in Him. He brings about that. He brings about their salvation. And among those whom He saves in that same way are children who die in infancy. So this is not a problem for me. In fact, uh, it is a source of great comfort and joy when you realize that every baby that's been aborted 
every child that dies in infancy. Uh, uh, that fact alone proves that they were chosen by God. They're part of the elect from the foundations of the world. But again, you'd have to take a look at the whole argument in the whole book. Somebody else in the middle here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember any remarks? Yeah. That is part of the party line. I hope the, all of you heard that. That's part of the party line, all right? But I've already answered that when I, in my remarks about the disjunctive syllogism. When you've got these all, and that's what you were referring to. Okay. Uh, if, 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 if it's a choice between A or B, and B is false, then in that context, you've proven the truth of A. If it's a choice between uh, exclusivism and inclusivism, and inclusivism is false, as clearly it is, then that's a, a case for uh, exclusivism. But, of course, in addition to that, there, are, there is this whole content of Scripture, like John chapter 3, verses 36, and lots of other passages that uh, uh, I don't happen to have on the overheads. So that has been the party line from the beginning. Uh, all of my critics have said, well, where is your case for inclusivism? And I'm pounding my head and I'm saying, haven't you people read the book? You know, the case is right there. But that's the way things are in the world of ideas. Well, let me just put this up here. American education in the 1990s, I feel, therefore I am. Most people arrive at their positions solely on the basis of feeling and emotion. Well, I don't doubt the power of the emotional issue here. I get, I get tugged by it, okay? But um, we can't let our theology be shaped by emotion or feeling. Yeah, uh, but uh, that's the first part of the book. Yeah, how you doing, incidentally? Yeah, that class really—you enjoyed my class. Amen. Amen. Yes. How do you see um, this inclusive position affecting Christianity? All right. Good question. Before John Hick finished his doctor's degree, he's this big inclusivist author. He taught at a um, at a little Bible college up in Minnesota. I think it's called Oak Hill Bible College. I'd never heard of it before. And I have to wonder how John Hick could be hired to teach at a Bible college when, you know, we normally think these are places where people have made a commitment to Scripture and so on. I ran into a former colleague of John Hicks, who's now teaching at a different college, and he told me that before John Hick began to teach at Oak Hill College, 
90% of their graduates went to the mission field. Hmm? But after John Hick began to teach there, the number of people who uh, went to the mission field from that co college had declined to less than 10%. That's one consequence of this. Listen, this has got to impress upon you. Why should I threaten my life and my family's future by going to the mission field when these people can be saved through their Buddhist beliefs? It's a killer for missions. All right, now, thank you. But watch this next passage that I put on here. I knew there was a reason it was here. All right. Yes. Romans 10. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? What my inclusivist friends say is there are all kinds of other nice things that missionaries do other than proclaiming a relativistic gospel. They teach people how to read. They teach people how to plant crops. That's what missions 